0: Jesus, thank you so much for telling us about us and telling us about yourself and about your dad and about the Holy Spirit. Thanks for helping us because uh, mostly we're pretty stupid uh, and you help us to be wise and you help us to learn things uh, from you. So I pray, Lord, today that we'd learn lots of good things from you. And uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us to understand things that, uh, that, that we hear from, uh, from the word today and uh, that you actually make it really relevant. Amen. All right. I wanted, wanted to give you a quick update about where we've been over the uh, seven weeks of the project so far, this being the eighth one. You can get all these online at sermon.net forward slash the project. Um, and you can listen to those. and get most of the PowerPoints there as well. We started off uh, on the first Sunday with the fact that God's glory is central for everything. And that is by default. It's not an optional thing. If he creates, if he's the creator of everything, he is automatically central to everything because that's the way a creator works and that's the way a designer works. Then we went from that to the fact that the whole of history, I really don't like this phrase, but this might help some of you. Um, I like you, but I just don't like the phrase, right? So I've heard people say history is his story, all right? We're just going to what it is. It's God's story the whole way along from when human beings rebel And don't do what God asks them to do. They get lost, and the rest of uh, His story is rescuing His people. That's what it is. And so, if you actually, you should be able to read virtually every book in the uh, Bible and see that it fits into a part of the redemptive and rescuing story. Okay. Then what we did then is we uh, we worked into this whole concept that uh, the real problem with humans, the real reason why they're actually lost is because they are unceasing worshippers and when they stop worshipping God, they don't worship nothing, they worship something else. And so people do this, they do this, I do it, you do it, everyone does it, we all, when we are not worshipping Jesus, we exchange gods for something else. So it's not right for anyone to say, uh, I don't worship anything else and I don't worship Jesus because it just doesn't work like that, people just do and you can listen to that sermon if you want the, uh, the details on that one. And then that flowed into the fact that, well, if we worship other things, those other things are idols. They're other gods. We turn them into other gods, whether they are or not, uh, initially. Um, and then Chris Windus came and he did a message for us on doctrine. He'll be doing a, a doctrine message in a couple of weeks. The whole point of the doctrine messages are actually to nail down pretty clearly what. You should believe as a Christian. What are the fundamentals of of, uh, faith in Christ and belief in terms of uh, what are the underlying truths uh, behind Christianity? Then what we did is we uh, did a, well, you listened and I talked, uh, a message on how to break idolatry of the heart, um, which is a flow on from the idolatry of the heart message. And then last week, that kind of flowed into, uh, and this is kind of, the middle part of kind of a three-part mini-series. Some of you, it is a bit of a drama, but a three-part mini-series which is about household, family and community. Okay, so last week we did uh, the fact that there's always been a household and uh, the household of the Trinity is massively impacted by the role of the Father and uh, God in His household has created lots of other households and the role of fathers in those households is really critical also. Got the picture? So today, what we're doing is we're doing a little bit of a hardcore thing about the New Testament church, the early church, and households in the New Testament. All right? Look, before we do that, I thought we'd play a couple of games. I don't do this every Sunday, for those who have been before, but we're going to have some fun today. So uh, what I'm going to do, you guys have all played word association games. I say, uh, I say a word, and you say the, a word that corresponds to it first in your head. You just say it out loud. All right? We're, we're just going to do this all together, I'll put the word up, read it, and you can just say it out loud. This won't be embarrassing because everyone will be talking at the same time. And uh, it should be, (laughs) is everything okay? They're already saying it. It's a gift of prophecy or something down the bottom. Is everyone cool with this? Just one word. I'll say it, you say the word. You ready? First one is pen. See, you're really good. This is good. See, I'm just priming you here. All right, here we go. Let's do another one. (laughs) Tato. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on down here. All right. Here we go. Otter. Uh, it's, get, it's getting quieter, all right? It's getting quieter. Here we go. Number four. School. Yeah, that's, that's better. The otter one's better. Otter? It's going on there. All right, here we go. Church. Interesting, okay, now we're just going to take it up a notch now, right? we're going to play another little uh, game, this is called the uh, the word disassociation game, okay, you know what this is, you have to think of the most unrelated thing that you can to the word that I put up and say it, to, uh, say it out loud, but we're just going to go, just a notch up a little bit, you actually need to do it, if you can find someone and just pair up, you actually need to tell someone else, is this cool? Yeah, yeah. So pair up with someone. If you need to move chairs, do that. All right. Everyone ready? Obviously, if you're going to do it to each other and you want to be friends at the end of it, you'll have to take turns. All right? So... um I'll put the word up and you can tell them. You ready? Here we go. The furthest thing. You have to go like the furthest thing from uh, this concept. Here we go. First one is cat. <laughs> oh, dog. Dog. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got a good one? No? Has anyone heard a good one that's way away? Broccoli. Nice. Good. Has everyone got the hang of this now? Am i I? Uh, Have I got a flop here or are we okay? We're okay? Here we go. We'll do the next one. Tony Abbott. (laughs) 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 Who's got a good one? Who's got a good one? Anyone? Garage. Garage. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Ted said Julia. I like that. All right, we're not done yet. Here we go. Book. Carrot, cake, carrot cake. That'll be all right. We'll have a bit of that. Two more. Space shuttle. People are just sitting there like, feel like I'm shining a spotlight. Just get the 22 out and knock me off all right here 's your last one. individualism uh, All right, you can grab your seats again if you want to go back this is uh this is really uh if we go with the word association rather than disassociation, and you actually uh, were to ask one of the biblical authors about what would they what would they associate with church, I wonder what they would say. And uh, today I want to suggest to you that the biblical authors probably would associate, I mean there's lots of metaphors that get used, but they would obviously use the body metaphors, a few of those. One that keeps coming up all the time is this one of family. And it's not that, uh, and hopefully what you'll see today is it's the biblical authors don't say, you guys need to act like a family. They actually say, you are a family. Everyone who's come to faith in Christ already is. That, that, is, that is actually the way, where it's at. So the question really is, does the family act like a family? And the truth is, probably most of the church acts like some kind of family, doesn't it? An estranged family, an offended family, where people are split from one another because they've had issues with each other. Um, there's so many varieties of families. Uh, the church, in some way, probably does reflect that. But in terms of the Holy Spirit family, the Holy Spirit household, the big question is um, how does the church go in actually being the kind of family that God created it to be? So that's where we're going today. And so I want to get into a little bit of first century history, right? So if you look. My wife, Anne, she, she never did history at school, and she doesn't even like it that much. All right? So as soon as I start talking history, she just goes, oh, really? I don't want to dishonor her here, but she's, uh, she's not a big history person. So if you're not a big history person, uh, I'm not going to get into it too much because I'm uh, a little bit of a fan of some of this stuff, but hopefully we'll get into it enough that it'll be helpful to you. So what I do want to look is, uh, look at is uh, we want to look at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 to 22, and have a look at the concept of household in the New Testament context. So you can follow it with me. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. What's a citizen? Yeah, a member, all right? If you go right back to the concept of emperors and kings and that kind of thing, a citizen is someone who's part of a kingdom, all right? And the New Testament talks all the time about kingdoms. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. So when Jesus is saying, come and be part of my kingdom, he wants you to come and be his citizen in his kingdom. Okay? And citizens have rights, but they have responsibilities, and they're submitted to the rulership of what that kingdom is on about. And the interesting thing is here, if you were here last week, is I talked about the fact that God's household in the Old Testament was Israel. And what's happened in the New Testament is God said, all of you other guys can come into my kingdom too. You can come and be with me. And rather than uh, the the, uh, Gentiles, the non-Israelites saying, oh, we're out, we can't be part of it. Paul here in Ephesians is saying, you were once strangers and aliens, but you can come and be part of the kingdom now. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So your three main concepts uh, in this section of Ephesians are those there, citizens, household or family, and the temple. All really, really critical concepts. We're not going to look very much at all at the uh, citizens' uh, terminology. That's just the kingdom thing. Uh, We're going to really have a good look at the household and the temple. Back in about 60 BC, there was a Roman poet and uh, author, quite a creative guy called Cicero. Has anyone heard of Cicero? A few people? Cicero actually wrote this. This is about 50, 60 BC. He wrote this about the household. What is more sacred... What more inviolably hedged about by every kind of sanctity than the home of every individual citizen? Within its circle are his altars, his hearts, his household gods, his religion, his observance, his ritual. It is a sanctuary so holy in the eyes of all that it were sacrilege to owner Ono theref- therefrom. So what you, what you need to get a sense of out of this uh, quote from Cicero is uh, 50 BC, 60 BC, Household and family was really, really, really important. And the, uh, the Romans knew it. If you actually uh, have a look at the significance of the first century household, you'll see a couple of things there. That it actually brought definition and identity to the individuals uh, that were in the household. Uh, even Caesar had a household. You can have a look at, a, at that in uh, Philippians 4 verse 22. All right, there's some saved people that are part of Caesar's household. But ultimately, you'll see in the Roman situation that Caesar was the father of the household and the household was the whole of Rome or the, home of, the whole of the Roman Empire, which is quite interesting. Okay. P.H. Towner, we're just going through a few technical things and then we'll uh, cut to the chase in a minute here. But P.H. Towner, actually, he's a biblical commentator and he makes these comments about the household in the first century. He says this, The household consisted of members of the immediate family and typically extended to include slaves, freedmen, servants and labourers and sometimes even business associates and tenants. In principle, the householder or the... See, isn't that interesting? The Lord, because Jesus Christ is proclaimed as Lord, had full authority over the members of the household he also had obligations and some legal responsibilities to them. Interesting stuff about the household. So what I hope you're doing is in the back of your mind, you're just overlaying over the top of this uh, first century information, Paul saying that we are the household. What does that mean? It means that we've actually got a lord. What does that mean? It means that there's different people in the household. They're not all directly blood relatives, but they're all in the household and everyone's got a role and they all kind of throw in and it makes the household work really, really well. But the cohesiveness of the unit depended more upon the sense of loyalty to the household, which stemmed more directly from common economic, social, psychological and religious factors. The household provided members with a sense of security and identity that the larger political and social structures are unable to give. This is what the church is meant to be, isn't it? The church provides a sense of security and identity that you're just not going to get from anywhere else. And I think I've said this already in the project, but I'll say it again. Uh, There's been some talk and and a little bit of research uh, that I heard a preacher talking about in the States uh, that's starting to come out that actually shows that as the world gets more and more high tech, uh, things need to get more high touch for people. People have the need to have more of a personal interaction with people. And I think that's actually true. Um, Who likes to call up a company and have a machine answering the phone and then go through 75 different menus until you finally get to the part of the machine that's actually going to solve your problem for you? It's so much better to call up and to talk to a person, isn't it? And we're getting into computers and emails and text messages and Facebook and Twitter and we're doing a whole bunch of those things in the project. But what's going to be really important in the project is is that there's a personal connection. See, we could send you an email and say, who wants to be in a community group? But I don't think that's really family and I don't think that's personal enough. So we'll we'll talk to you about being in it. We'd like you to talk to us about it. We'd like to have face-to-face contact as much as we can and at the very least, phone call contact. All right, the next question is this. Where did the early church actually meet and why did they meet there? I wonder if you've ever asked this question. I've left a bunch of gear out of this message, okay? I'm kind of the guy where I just, I want to put as much information in as I can so that I've persuaded you that this is actually the, what God wants us to do. But if I do that, we're going to be here until about 2.30, all right? And my wife could well be dead down in kids' church and I personally would like to go home with my wife. After this. Um, so, uh, look, you can look up the scriptures at a later date. You can check it all out if you want. I've written a whole Bible college essay uh, on it, and you can read my whole essay and the research that I did on it uh, because there is a ton of information on this stuff. Even if you just go home and you get on some kind of concordance somewhere on the computer on the net and just type in house and household and search the New Testament, you will just see house and households happening all the time through the New Testament probably in ways you hadn't noticed before because they tend to come in the postscript almost of uh, most of the biblical books. So you get to the end and g'day, you know, because that's what they are, it's kind of the farewells at the end. So g'day, Justice, and hey, how you doing, and hope to see you soon, all these kind of greeting things. And all this stuff comes up about households often in that context. But let me just run through this with you uh, first and uh, then I'm going to get to a specific example of it. The early church actually did meet in the temple and the synagogues, all right? So I'm going to go against all of the people out there who say house churches are pretty much the only way that you should do church, because it's quite obvious that the early church actually met in halls. They met in something like this, okay? They just did, and I'm going to show you some scriptures about that. The scriptures are, um, let me show you the scriptures and then I'll read that top point. Acts 18 verse 4, Paul was trying to persuade the Jews in the synagogue but gave up and decided to go to the Gentiles. So what you actually see in Acts is that um, Paul and the disciples were going into the the synagogues and the temples and they're saying, look, we're kind of like you guys. You just need to take the next step. You've got everything right up to the end of the uh, Old Testament, but you just need to come with us and take the next step to Jesus. So they're going into the synagogues and the temples and they're saying, come, come. Jesus is good. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the one that's come for you. But they didn't want to take that step. And Paul and the disciples go into the temples and the synagogues, and that's one of the things they're doing, evangelism, missions. That's what they're doing. But Paul gives up and he goes, blow you guys, I'm going to the Gentiles. You won't listen to me. And Then in Acts 28 verse 20, uh, you've got a similar kind of vibe there where uh, um, Paul says it's because of the hope it's because of the hope of glory or the Messiah, I can't quite remember, that I'm in chains. And what Paul's really saying is he's saying, we're just kind of the continuation of you guys. And so that's why they're meeting in these halls is to try and persuade. A really specific one is in Acts chapter 19 where Paul goes to this uh, synagogue and he keeps preaching and proclaiming Christ and the Jews just get upset with him and they kick him out. So what he does is he and the disciples, and I'm not sure what disciples they are, but it says Paul and the disciples all went to the hall of Tyrannus and they met regularly in the hall of Tyrannus. And then kind of a postscript on the story is uh, Luke, the author of Acts, basically says pretty much everyone in that area over a two-year period got to hear the gospel about Jesus. All right? So they're meeting in the halls. They're meeting there for uh, teaching, evangelism, and debate. But the interesting thing is they're also meeting in houses because this defined and identified God's people. It became a, a guideline for behavior within the church because the church was a family. There are too many to list, but uh, just note this one. Acts 5.42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They're meeting in houses. Guess where Saul was going when he was seeking to kill Christians? He was going from house to house. That's what he's doing. He's going from house to house to ask the Christians. All right. It's specifically, it doesn't say he's going from temple to synagogue. He's going from house to house because the Christians are a family. If you're a family, you meet in in a house. It's where families are. All right, see, those of you who don't like history that much, you're just going to be going, eh. it's a dodgy old picture of some rocks on top of each other, but it's better than that. See this thing here, this thing here is actually the, uh, the Capernaum Synagogue. Now, they're pretty sure that it's not the Capernaum Synagogue that Jesus used to go to a lot, but uh, it's very, very uncommon archaeologically in their digs to find that a synagogue actually gets moved. Okay, So they're pretty certain that this is the real deal spot but not actually the synagogue itself. There's been another one built on top of it. So when there was uh, problems with the synagogue or they wanted to rebuild it, they'd just knock it down and build it on the same site. Okay, What you might notice is just up the back here is like an octagonal shaped building and uh, that's actually, uh, they reckon it's about 85 feet away. They think that that octagonal-shaped building is a church that has been built directly on top of Peter's house, the disciple Peter's house. And here's the thing about Christianity. Christianity doesn't say it's true and it's useful um, because it just works. Christianity actually asserts that it's the real deal, that you can check it out. And so when you go and you start digging up rocks in the Middle East, you find things out about Christianity. And they're not 100% certain, certain that uh, that's Peter's house, but they're pretty sure. Um, and some people are actually suggesting that Jesus went and stayed in Peter's house, because you remember that story where it says, uh, and Je- Jesus went to Peter's home, where his mother, Peter's mother-in-law, was sick with a fever. I think it was. That was in Capernaum. And there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. Uh, in the Gospels there, that talks about Jesus going home to Capernaum. It's, uh, it's really interesting. This could be the very place where Jesus went home to have a sleep. Couldn't it? Wouldn't that be cool? What they do know for sure is that underneath that central octagonal bit is where a house church used to meet. Let me tell you some of what some of the uh, inscriptions are that are scratched onto the wall. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, help thy servant christ have mercy this is stuff that's actually scratched into the walls of this uh of this house that was underneath there here's a close-up of the uh octagonal building this is, some of you might be thinking why would they put an octagonal building on top of uh, a house well the reason why they did it and there's some um there's some evidence of this happening in a, a number of other places, is that when there was a really special archaeological site or some special event actually happened that had spiritual significance, they'd build an octagonal church right on top of it. And surprise, surprise, this centre part of the uh, octagonal church is actually right on top of the room that the church used to meet in. Interesting. The uh, the house was made out of these black Abundantly available basalt rocks. Okay? And you know that story in uh, Luke 15, I think it is, where the woman uh, loses some coins and she see- searches until she finds her coins? You know, with us, with our nice flat carpet floors and tiled floors, you just kind of think, where are you going to lose a coin? Well, surprise, surprise, the floors in these houses were made of black basalt, ill fitting rocks. All of a sudden it starts to make sense because the rocks don't fit together properly and maybe one of the coins has gone down a crack. That's going to be a big job if you've lost your favourite coins in a house. It's got lots of slots in the floor and it's pretty dark in there. That's a big job. In fact, they actually found that uh, one of the rooms in this house that they think might be Peter's house actually had been plastered inside and they didn't commonly do that. You didn't plaster the inside of rooms in these houses because people just didn't have the money to do it it had actually been plastered twice really interesting the reason why they did it is to improve the light so that people could meet in there here's a bit of an artist's rendition of uh what the house looked like so you've got a whole bunch of uh, other rooms around here this this room here is the one that they think the church used to meet in in fact they're sure that's where the church met in they just don't know 100 percent whether it's peter how big do you reckon that room was Anyone like to have a guess? Seven by seven metres. And I reckon they probably packed as many people in as they could. It's smaller than this room here because church is a family. Church is the household of God. household of God meets in a house. It meets in a family context. This is the... um, the plan of the building, you can see there, that's uh, the large room, the venerated room. That's where the uh, center of that octagonal piece is actually built right on top of. Interesting stuff. So we've got a huge amount of evidence here that the uh, church was actually meeting in someone's home. Let's move on. Why would people meet in a house? And I'm going to give you a couple of theological reasons why that's the case. If you look at Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.9, God's the Father. Those who are saved by Jesus are God's children. In Galatians 4.1-7, Jesus is the firstborn of the family, Romans 8.29, and our brother, Hebrews 2.11. What have you got? You've got a family. That's what you got. It follows then that if the church is called the household of God and the great house of God, then it ought to spend most of its time in a family or a house context. This is a really critical uh, thing that you need to to let sink deep down and It doesn't matter how old you are. Back in the uh, first century, you worshipped in the context that defined who you were. So if the Christians all the time went to the debating halls People would recognize them as being debaters. If that's where you meet, that identifies who you are. You go to the debating halls, you're a debater. That's what you are. But if you worship and you get together in a house, you're a family. Now, I'm just going to change gears a little bit and go to the last metaphor in Ephesians chapter 2, which is the concept of the temple probably should be quite familiar with this. Uh, back in uh, Moses' time, God set up the tabernacle and then there was the temple. And all you need to know about the temple is uh, what I'm going to explain from this picture here is the closer you get to the middle of the temple, the more holy and uh, I guess the scarier it was in a sense because you got closer to where God was. If you have a look at this diagram down the bottom here of this page, the uh, the most holy place was right here in the Holy of Holies. Anyone know what was in the Holy of Holies? Ark of the Covenant. Anyone know what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Ten Commandments, the manna, what else? Aaron's staff. Cool. You know what's interesting about those three items in the Ark of the Covenant is they all are a testimony to the people's failure. The, the, uh, The Ten Commandments, the people have disobeyed it. The manor that people grumbled about and Aaron's staff was a big showdown on leadership. The people said they didn't want Aaron to be the head guy anymore. So what you've got is you've got this remembrance to everyone's failure. It's right in the middle there. Well, it's, not, it's right in the middle of that room there at the most holy place of the temple. You know and I remember asking a number of years ago when I spoke to a youth group, I said, who here thinks often they just go, oh, God's my mate? Just go, at least give him Mr. Mate. (laughs) All right? You've got to give him respect. And this is the whole notion of the tabernacle and the temple. You just don't walk in and just think, oh, that'll do. You don't think that'll do with God. You don't think, oh, he's just my mate. You treat him with incredible honour and respect. And this was the whole idea here around the temple. So what you've got is the closer you get to that place where the Holy of Holies is, the less people can get there until you get to the Holy of Holies and once a year, the high priest, the head guy of all the priests, once a year gets to go in there one day a year. You don't go in there any other day unless you're looking for trouble. All right? And only an idiot picks a fight with someone who's far stronger than them because they're going to get beat up. All right? So you don't go to God and just go, hey, hey, uh, You know, you can imagine the the high priest is gone in 10 days earlier and then he's gone, I feel like going for a trot in there. God's just not going to do that. He's not going to have that. All right, you treat him with honor and you treat him with respect. And in between the uh, holy place here and the holy of holies was a curtain. I'm just trying to remember the metric conversion. I think the original height in the temple of uh, that curtain was actually 30 cubits, which I think is about 20 metres, I think. Uh, uh, King Solomon actually raised uh, the height of that curtain, I think, to uh, maybe it was Herod. They raised it about another 10 cubits. I think it was Herod that raised it another 10 cubits. I was reading about it in uh, Wars of the Jews, Josephus yesterday, which is if you're ever tired and you can't go to sleep, Read Wars of the Jews, right? There's some good stuff in there, but she's uh she's pretty intense stuff. It'll help you to drop off. Um but uh it's about forty cubits high. This curtain, right? So you don't that's a big curtain, okay? That's a huge curtain. What it symbolized is uh you cannot come to me. It symbolized God saying, You you cannot come to me, there's a barrier in between you and I. You come in once a year only with your top person. And he actually came in with the blood of a dead animal and uh, the lid of this Ark of the Covenant. So if you imagine all those evidences of the people's failure inside the box and then there's a lid on top of it. Anyone know what the lid was called? It was called the mercy seat. And you know what the priest would do? Is the priest would come in and he'd actually put some blood of the dead animal on top of the mercy seat. That is amazing to me. That place, the Holy of Holies, is where God literally dwelt. That's not the only place He dwelt, but there was a special presence of God in that place. You've got all the mess um, and the disobedience of the people in the box. You've got the lid and He's putting blood on top of the mercy seat. So what comes in between God and the failures? The blood of a dead animal. That's what it is. And it's mercy because all the people are not getting what they deserve. That's what mercy is, is not getting what you do deserve. What's phenomenal, when you get to Jesus' death on the cross, is in verse uh, 37 and 38 of Mark chapter 15, where Jesus is dying in the, on the cross. Mark says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Who tore it? Not some dude on a rickety scaffold, right, yelling out to his mates to hold on to the bottom of the ladder. I tried to find some information about how thick the uh, curtain was and uh, it was a big deal. That curtain was a pretty big deal. And years ago, I'd been told somewhere that it was about an inch thick, this curtain, right? So you imagine some dude back then on a scaffold, 20 metres up in the air trying to tear. It's not going to happen, all right? It just isn't going to happen. What is it? It's God. Tears the curtain. (laughs) Because behind that curtain symbolically is God in the presence of God. So God tears the curtain and what is he saying? He's saying, you can come to me now. You can come and you can commune with me. You can come and be close to me. You don't have to go through one man once a year anymore. You can come directly to me. And see, this is really interesting in the context of the household and Ephesians chapter 2 because the last couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes it really clear that God's temple has actually shifted now. He's moved house. Not only are we the household of God, but God's moved house. At Mark 15, God decides, that's it. I'm not just going to be here anymore. I'm going to let these people come to me. Not in the temple. It's going to be a whole different thing. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You get that? God moved house and he moved from the temple into into us. Now, this is probably Sunday school kind of stuff, right? But if you actually just sit and you ponder that for a bit, how would the eternal God dwell in us? That is profound. And then you get all those scriptures from Paul, like where he says that uh, the power that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of you now. So no longer do you have to go down the street and buy a lovely looking lamb or goat and go to the temple and ax it, right? Cut its head off and be splashing blood all over the place. Christ's blood got splashed all over the place so that the curtain could be torn. You could get to God. But even more than that, that he takes his spirit in a sense from inside the holy of holies and now he wants to live inside of you and you become the temple. That's cool. Oh, that's really good. Like, think about what's possible now. If you look at the Old Testament, the people in the Old Testament, uh, they had a relationship with the Holy Spirit, but by and large, the relationship with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. And there was a sense in which the Spirit of the Lord would come upon and then leave. Not now. Not since the curtain's been torn. He's coming to dwell and to live and to make His home in you which makes it really, really special when we get together. And this is really what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2. It is really special when all the body of Christ gets together because in a sense they're all bringing God together as part of God's family. You get that? And that's why community groups for the project here are so central to what we're doing. Because I think it was so central to the New Testament church. Anyone know where uh, the Christians were meeting when the Holy Spirit first got given in Acts chapter 2? Anyone like to have a guess? What kind of room? In a house. They were actually meeting in a house. Here's the scripture. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and dividing tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the first moment in the New Testament church where the tearing of the curtain, in a sense the, uh, the releasing of the Holy Spirit to actually be resident inside of people first occurs. This is a cool time. And of course, if God's... Some of you might think, well, oh, that's weird. Uh, rushing wind... Uh, fire on people's heads not burning them at some point you just got to say God if you want to do some stuff you can just do it all right if you go right back to Moses you see Moses walks up to a bush it's on fire and it's not burning up go, that's cool you can create fire you can create a fire that doesn't burn things that's weird but I'll give it to you but the point here is the Holy Spirit the very first time the Holy Spirit came in and dwelt people was in a house So, what's the end result? Let's read Ephesians 2, verse 19. See if you can understand this maybe just a little bit more in its depth. So, then you're no longer strangers and aliens. All of us would be strangers and aliens. None of us are Jewish, as far as I know. Maybe you are, but most of us aren't. We'd be left on the outer. But you're not strangers and aliens anymore because you've been invited in to the family. Not only just invited, but called. you're called to be in his kingdom. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, members of his family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, just notice in the next two verses in 21 and 22, the need for the church to be knit together really well. In whom the whole structure being joined, all right. So God's kind of going, I'm, I'm making you into a beautiful house. You're my household, you're my family and I'm making you into a beautiful house and you all need to be joined together really well. Who wants to live in a house with a, that doesn't have mortar between the bricks? You don't. My boys would have it knocked down in about three minutes. All right, would be crashing into the walls and we've had a gaping hole with a 60k an hour southwesterly blowing through it. But as you are joined together, you grow into a holy temple. Where's the te- what's, what's the significance of the temple? The temple is where God, God's presence dwells. So if, a, if the church becomes a holy temple, when we get together and when we get together in community groups and, and we are connected to each other and joined together, the Holy Spirit's there in a really special way. Is He there with us as an individual where, when we're at work on Monday? Absolutely. Is there something special that goes on when we all get together and we bring the Holy Spirit in each one of us together as a community and as a group? Totally. Totally there, are, there is. And you can expect really cool things to happen. And that'll be kind of where we're going over the next couple of weeks when I'll be speaking is what kind of things actually happen when the church lives in the community that it's meant to be living in, when it lives as a family the way that it's meant to be living as a family. You see, I was just saying to Wes before church started today, God's not calling us to to act like a family. He's calling us to act like what we are. We are a family. So you need to act like one, a good one, not a dysfunctional one, not a broken one. In him you're also being built together. There's another together comment by Paul. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here we go. They were now brothers and sisters in the first century. We're brothers and sisters. With their father indwelling them by the Holy Spirit. Thus, as they gathered together in homes, they had opportunity to live as the family of God and be the temple of God, thereby being connected to both his family and his presence. Isn't that great? That's the opportunity that we have. Last slide and then we're done. I'm going to show you a clip from a movie. When you're a um, father of young kids, you get to see some of the most random movies. So I'm expecting that not many people would have seen this movie. (laughs) Who's actually seen The Ant Bully? Oh, there it is. (laughs) Do you guys want to... No. You don't want to tell the plot? Tell people about the plot? You're all good? Look, The Ant Bully is just a um, a movie that really... uh, you don't need to know too much about the plot. Basically what it is is there's this kid that loves to kill ants and somehow he ends up getting made the size of an ant. All right? And he's got to learn how to get on with the ants. And there's this really interesting scene uh, where the two of them are just lying on this rock or lying on the ground uh, at night time talking about... Uh, the ant talks about his colony and the, uh, the boy talks about his colony, which is the city that they're looking out on. So I'll just roll it and... Uh, Make a couple of comments after it. The uh, the ant says to the boy. He basically says, "Can you tell me about your colony?" He goes, "I assume that everyone in your colony is all working together and putting in their piece for the common good." And the kid sits there and it almost embarrassingly admits, "No, we don't really do that. Uh, everyone," he, he says, "it's basically every man for himself in that colony over there." And they're sitting on the hill looking at a big city. And the ant comes out and he goes, "Why do you do that?" He says, that's really dumb. He said, in my colony, everyone's got their job. Everyone's got the thing that they do and they all work together for the glory of the colony. And there's a sense in the New Testament and probably in a lot of churches, and I'm I'm as much to blame as anyone, where we do have a little bit of every man for himself, every woman for for themselves in, in churches, don't we? And... It's a bit embarrassing in the movie watching it like for humans because you sit there and you go, yeah, the ants have got a better idea about it than what we've got. They've got it worked out. You see, we tend to go to church. I'm not having a go at anyone here, but we tend to go to church a lot of the time. We just think, well, was that a good show? Did that suit me? Instead of what can I actually contribute to it? How can I contribute to this household, this family for the glory of God? That's really the question. I uh, put on uh, Twitter a few days ago that in God's economy uh, we always comes before me and I think a lot of the time in when we read the Bible we actually do violence to the things that God has actually communicated to the Bible because we interpret it firstly and almost solely sometimes in an individualistic context and it wasn't written that way. I mean if you look at this Ephesians 2 passage, yeah it uses the word you but is it you singular or you plural? Or he's talking to a whole church. And what do we do? Well, we tend to just go, oh, okay, uh, that's just for me. Jesus said he loves me. Well, Jesus says he loves you. Who does he love? He loves everyone. And you don't actually have to go back too far into the Old Testament to realize that that's the way it worked in the Old Testament. And if you do your search on uh, households in the New Testament, you'll see that in the New Testament as well. There's lots and lots of stories where they Community gets changed specifically by the Father being changed. So what happens is it's not just me. It's not individualistic me. Uh, father, The Father comes to faith or some people in the household come to faith and everyone does. Not because it's forced but because we think we as opposed to me. And that's a really big challenge because it's, this battle is not actually going to be won by five minutes of me talking about it on a Sunday morning. Because we are told and marketed to and persuaded by marketing all of the time that it's about me. It's about individualistic me. And that I need to fulfill myself. I need to have uh, peace and well-being in my life. And where's the marketing out there telling everyone to think about community and to think about corporateness rather than thinking about individuals? So in the project... We are going to strive to get a structure that serves biblical community. We don't want that to be God and we don't want that to be forcing people into a mold that they shouldn't be in, but you do need to have some structure. If you don't have structure, things don't grow very well and they're certainly not very sustained. So we're going to have some structure, but what's important is the structure serves the vision and the goal, not the uh, vision and the goal serving the structure. And I've been in lots of churches where the vision and the And the goals are actually serving the structures. We don't want to do that. We want to have good structures in terms of community groups and the like that actually enhance and promote biblical community. But we are going to get together on Sunday mornings because the Christians got together on Sunday mornings in the New Testament. So we'll get together and we'll have someone preaching. We'll have someone encouraging. And then during the week, we're going to fan out into biblical community, which isn't just going to mean that we get together for an hour and a half or two hours on a weeknight or on a weekend. Because community is more than that, isn't it? What if you? Uh, I think Nathan mentioned it earlier. What if you? Uh, y- your kids came into you and they said, uh, "Okay, well, I'm just going to do family for two hours, and then the rest of the week, I'm just doing my own thing." You'd say to them, "Well, you're not doing family. I am. That's not family. Family's not just two hours when you decide you want to do it." We're a living and a growing family whose life together requires mutuality of service and care, recognition of responsibilities, and a sense of identity, belonging, and protection. These are really critical uh, in any family. So you don't, your kids are not really old enough. I mean, if you ask them to do the dishes, you'll probably only have about half of your dishes left, right? They just smash them. They go all Greek on you and just start smashing them, right? <laughs> My apologies if you're Greek. But that's what they'll do. But in our house, we've already started giving our kids little jobs to do. Here's what I'd like you to do. Can you just go and do this? Because that's kind of what a family is, isn't it? And it's not. please don't hear me saying that we're going to be this big, high, falluting kind of authority in the church and we're going to tell you what to do. We're not going to tell you what to do. But if the church and if the family is going to operate really effectively... Well, we're all going to somehow be coordinated and ordered so that we can throw our peace in and really cool things can happen. Because we believe that as we act like a family, as we act like a household and we make our contribution, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is going to change everything. And he's going to do some really cool, amazing things. Even when you're washing dishes. We don't even have to wash dishes here, right? But there's some jobs in the church that are a bit like washing dishes, aren't they? What are you doing? Well, what you're doing is you're preparing the way with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for God to do something really cool. Who knows what that will be? But who also knows that when you're doing some really mundane jobs, some of the most amazing moments happen in your family where you get to have conversations with your kids and with your parents. I think one of the deepest conversations I've ever had um, with my dad was putting a shed up. It's pretty mundane stuff, up and down ladders, all right? It's all backside at the end of the day because when you go up and down ladders and you haven't done it for years, that's what happens, all right? You go up and down ladders and you, you're screwing screws in and it's really mundane stuff, but all of a sudden these amazing conversations happen. They get right down to a heart level. And sometimes in church, I think that's the way it works. And uh, some people came early today, set up the chairs for us and I was just really blessed by it. We've been setting up the chairs each week and we've enjoyed doing that. But it was such a blessing to have other people help out today. And who knows what conversations are going to happen when people set chairs up. I believe they can. Really good conversations can actually happen with the really mundane tasks. Maybe in in a church, setting chairs up is like washing the dishes at home. Isn't it? But the people who are setting it up, man, how cool is this? They're like the, you've got the Holy Spirit. and Well, you do too. That, that guy setting that row up. He's got the Holy Spirit. And who knows? Who knows what actually might happen as we serve one another? See, God would have the project be filled with lots of different types of people, each taking on different roles and responsibilities in a structured way so that we can function effectively as God's household. And I guess um, last week was a real marker in the sand for the project and I'll finish on this note. It it was a real marker in the sand for us uh, as a church because we'd made a commitment as a leadership team that um, we just wanted to take the load for all of the structure of the project here uh, while people sat in. And they, and they heard where we were coming from and they prayed about it and they sought the Lord about whether he'd have them be part of what, what he's doing here. Uh, and we've just been saying the whole way along, we said we've got enough personnel for probably eight to ten weeks to look after things um, on our own. And just let people sit and, um, and just, just work that through in their own heart. But last week got to our capacity. And I don't say this, uh, I'm not saying any of this in a manip- manipulative kind of way where I'm trying to get you to help out because we just don't want to do that. But you just need to know last week we got the c- capacity for us. We weren't far off having 110 people and we kind of had to pull out all the stops to make sure everything got looked after last week. Um, and it was fine and it went really, really well. But I guess today is a kind of a, a marker for, uh, for all of you to hear from us that we'd love you to get on board with us. We'd love you to partner with us in this thing. God's doing something here in the project that goes well beyond our expectations. We didn't expect at the eighth week marker that we would even have all of you, those of you who are thinking to partner with us. We we never expected that we would have this many people that would want to partner with us. We're just pumped about it. We're so excited about it. The way that I've been saying it to people the last week is uh, the project hasn't reached my dreams or visions, but it's exceeded my expectations. And there's so much stuff that's happening that's so obviously what God's up to. But it's getting to the point for us where we just need you, we need you to partner with us. And, and, and we're not. And this is kind of... Part of our vision and our our mission, you can get one of the cards if you're new here uh, for the first time today, but this is part of the vision and the mission of the project is we actually see that you go from not being a Christian to loving Jesus. Once you love Jesus, you love his body, so you get in community groups. And once you love his body, then you serve the body. And you you believe Jesus when he says it's more blessed to give than receive. And we're not going to stand up here Uh, week after week and bang a drum and say we need to run a kids ministry so we need people to help out. What we do want you to do if you want to partner with us is to go home and pray about it and ask the Lord how he'd have you serve. And we don't even want, I think in the first week I uh, talked about the 80-20 principle where 20% of the people do 80% of the work and I said it's because 80% of the people are disobedient. We're not asking any individual to do 16 things. All we ask is that everyone in the church does one thing regularly. And you just go and pray about it and you talk to Jesus about it and find out from Him what He would have you contribute. That might mean, seriously, and we're totally happy with this, it might mean you come 10 minutes early on a Sunday morning and you just sit in a corner somewhere and you just pray for the service. I can do with your prayer. Nothing could do with your prayer. Pray for the people that will be coming. And you, just, you might put your hand up and you just go, yeah, I just really feel like that's what God wants me to do. Just come and sit and pray for 10 minutes. That is my regular contribution. I'm going to do that most weeks. I'm open for that. Some of you might be, uh, man, I think down the track I'd like to be a community group leader. So you stick your hand up and you just going to go, man, can I just get alongside whoever's going to be running one of the community groups and, and just do it with them? And maybe down the track, I'll have my own. As they multiply, as as God brings more and more people to us and does more and more things, they multiply. And and I'll get to be someone who makes that regular contribution. Maybe, I mean, have a look around. There's so many things. We could talk about morning teas. You could say, man, because lots of people have been doing this. They go, someone last week just came up to, uh, went up to and just goes, man, I love baking. So bake to the glory of God, all right? Isn't that what it is? So bake. And this is what's really, really cool about what's going on in the project here is I feel really awkward throwing all this sort of stuff out to you now because there's a genuine free willingness for people to make a contribution. We didn't ask anyone to come and set up chairs this morning. I don't know of them being asked. Maybe they were. They weren't asked by me. And that's what's so really beautiful about it. We want to preserve that. So I'm not going to have a list of 16 things that need to be done in the project. We need to fill all these jobs. Really, it's about us telling you what the jobs are, maybe, and you just going away and praying about it, and seeking the Lord about what it might be. We uh, just have an abundance of kids, abundance of kids, don't we? There's some pressures. To be honest, there's some pressures in kids' church. But you know what it is? It's God doing some really cool things and us scrambling to catch up with what he's doing. And I don't know about you, but I'd, I love being in that place. I think when the 3,000 people got saved in one day in Acts, the church would have just been scrambling to work out what they were going to do to actually catch up with what God was doing. And last week, we had like 31 kids down in kids' church and we're scrambling to cope with it. And I say, praise be to Jesus. Glory to God for that, isn't it? So many people, so many people get to hear about Jesus and get challenged and, and learn and get drawn closer to Jesus. And so there's, I mean, you could talk about the need for, uh, for kids' church. Yeah, there's a need for kids' church. There's a need for people to be helpless, for people to, to be teachers. For, and the way they're trying to do it down there and the way they're working on it with uh, Helen Schwartz is just to go four weeks on, four weeks off. And uh, we thought, to be honest, I felt really bad asking for anyone to help out with something that meant they had to be out of church until we got the, the sermon website up where you could actually get some of the content that, that goes down in church um, while you're out. There's lots, lots and lots of needs. So I would just appeal to you um, not to do anything in particular except to go home and talk to the Lord about what he'd have you do. And then put your name forward. And the people that... I'll tell you, there's there's basically four or five specific people that you could talk to. I was going to put it up here, but my battery's just gone flat. Um, My wife, Ange is going to look after organising morning teas. Uh, We'll just keep going like we're going. As more people get on board, we'll try to come up with some kind of planner so we we can work out how people can all fit together and function effectively there. Uh, You can see Helen if you'd like to just help out. You don't have to be a big kind of teacher kind of person down in kids' church. You could just be a helper. You could help out with the craft. Um, So you can talk to Helen about that. Um, Renee out there is open to uh, people coming and talking to her and uh, helping out with Christ. And lots of people have done that already. That's really cool. Uh, And Nathan, obviously, is going to be... coordinating some stuff to do with music and community groups. So if there's a gifting there and you go and pray about it and you feel like God wants you to make a contribution there, go and talk to Nathan. And if you just kind of, some people in churches, God bless them because the Lord knows that we need them. Love to do logistical stuff. They love to pack up chairs. They like to set up chairs. They like to look after sound stuff. If you, got, if you feel like the Lord wants you to make that kind of contribution there, you can go and talk to Diff about it. And if you're not sure what category that God's leading you in but you know what he wants you to do, just come and let us know and we'll work out where to put you because we just do want this family and this household to run really well. okay? And we want it to be really effective and really fruitful. it has been a fair bit of teaching this morning so uh, I appreciate your, uh, your attention. I might just pray. Um, yeah, why don't you pray with me? God, I just ask that you'd make us into a really effective household of yours, a really effective family. Lord, I pray that you'd help uh, the leadership um, to just be really clear in our minds about how to set things up so that they don't become a burden to people, Lord, but it releases people. Lord, and I pray that uh, a whole bunch of... People listening today would take the opportunity in their times with you this week to just ask you what you'd have them put in, Lord. And uh, I pray, Lord, uh, as we've been praying in our leadership team so much that people who come to the project here would just give out of a free heart, out of a generous heart, uh, and just serve knowing that it's more blessed to give than to receive. God, I pray that you bless them. Lord, I pray that if uh, anything I've said has created a heaviness or a feeling of compulsion, Lord, I pray that you would take that away um, and that you would just draw all of us to yourself and uh, clarify again for all of us, Lord, uh, how you want us to contribute to each other so that everyone will be blessed. Amen.